In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Jenny Casson is today's guest on Money Tales. Jenny grew up with messages of rich people being evil, which created a chip on her shoulder about wealth. As Jenny created goals for her future, making money wasn't on the list. But then she shifted her focus, and as her career evolved, she interacted more and more with wealthy people. This allowed Jenny to realize that wealth doesn't reflect a person's heart. What they're doing with the money reflects who they really are. Hi, this is Sandy. Jenny has over 25 years of experience as an attorney and advisor for mission-driven enterprises. She has helped her clients raise millions of dollars from values-aligned investors and raised over $1.5 million for her own business. Jenny is the author of Raise Capital on Your Own Terms, How to Fund Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. She is also the president of Community Ventures, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the economic and social development of communities, and she's involved in many other mission-driven nonprofits and initiatives. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Jenny Casson. Jenny Casson, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Yes, it's great to have you today. Please share a little bit about yourself, if you could, your history, especially at two or three pivotal moments that really make you who you are. Sure. So I have a a long, strange journey. I grew up in a family that was very much about getting really good grades having high achievement. I remember my dad used to say, oh, someday you'll be on the Supreme Court. That was kind of the big aspiration. And so I was all about just being a pleaser, trying to get the best grades I possibly could, excelling at school. That was pretty much all I did. I didn't have a ton of extracurricular (laughs) activities. So that's kind of what I grew up with, with that idea that I just needed to be the best in academic pursuit. So I did that for a while, went to Berkeley, uh, undergrad, and that was pretty radicalizing, as you can imagine. You know, Berkeley is such a hotbed of activism and questioning about our economic system. Why is it set up this way? Why are there winners and losers? That it's not based on merit; it's based on kind of the luck of the draw. And I became very passionate about wanting to do something about that and create more justice in the world. At the same time, I think I also grew up with, and because of that, to some extent, I, because of that, and also because of messages I got from my parents, I think I thought that rich people were evil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
if you have money, you must be a bad person because it's not just that you should have so much money when other people don't. I never want to be a greedy, bad person like that. And I did go to an all-girls private school that was full of a lot of very rich girls, and I always felt lesser than. And so I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about wealth, and I was super passionate about doing something about social justice. And so went to law school, after law school, went to work for a nonprofit because I felt like the only way you can do good in the world is working for a nonprofit. Was very, paid very, very little, you know, but felt very proud about that. <laughs> I wore it as a badge of honor. And I stayed there for 11 years. And then I had an opportunity to go co-found a, a law firm helping mission-driven businesses raise money from investors. And this was something I was, I didn't know I would be so passionate about it, but I had come to really love businesses, small businesses, businesses that were doing good in their community. I had worked in a low-income community at my nonprofit, and a lot of small businesses were a really important part of the community, and I saw how they struggled. So I just love the idea of using my legal training to help businesses raise money in ways that would allow them to stay true to who they were, what they wanted to do in the world. So I started doing that in 2006. And so ever since then, I've been um, like a mission-driven securities and business lawyer. (laughs) And so that really changed things for me because I went from that world of nonprofits to the world of business and finance, which formerly I knew nothing about. So it took some time for me to get comfortable with that, but I'm, I'm really happy that I did find myself in that world because I've learned so much and I've learned that we don't have to be intimidated by money and finance. Wealthy people are incredibly diverse. There's nothing evil about having money because we can do good with money. That's kind of a really short summary. (laughs) Not as short as maybe it could have been, but a short summary of, of my journey. Jenny, that was a great summary. Why don't we go back to your dad talking about being on the Supreme Court? I love that visual. You mentioned that they share, they gave you some messages. Would you tell us some more about how did they do that? What were these messages? Yeah. So, you know, my dad was a kid during the Depression and he just had a lot of major issue around scarcity. He also had, he had a job where he, I think he really didn't like his job, but he felt like he had to just keep doing it day in, day out to make that decent wage, you know, to support the family. And he didn't realize it at the time, but we were actually fairly comfortable financially. But my dad was always talking about, you know, oh, don't leave the lights on when you leave the room. It's flushing money down the toilet. (laughs) So I think I just grew up with this feeling like there was never enough and, and kind of resented people who did have money because I feel like he kind of had an issue with those people like, oh, why do they have money when I work so hard and I don't have as much money as they do. And And then I did go to this all-girls private school in Bel Air. Most of the girls there were incredibly wealthy, came from very wealthy families. And I felt like I was poor compared to them. But later on, I found out, no, actually, you really were quite middle class and comfortable. You just didn't know it because of the comparison group and because of those messages from my dad. (laughs) 
So have you talked to, to your parents about why they sent you to an all-girls private school that had a lot of wealthy people when, when they, well, at least your father seemed to have a stigma around, well, well, it was all about the academics. That was the most important thing, you know, and I happened to live in a neighborhood where the public high school didn't have the best reputation. The number one thing in my family was getting the best education and climbing that ladder of academic success. So it was a values-driven decision. Yeah. And so what was it like, just more specifically, of going to school with so many wealthy people and feeling like maybe you were on a very different end of the spectrum of wealth. Yeah. I mean, it was really hard. The girls, unfortunately, a lot of the girls were quite mean. (laughs) And I'm sure I had such a chip on my shoulder that maybe I didn't even like give anyone a chance. You know, I was so ready to kind of feel victimized or criticized that I just kind of probably, looking back now, I probably did go in with sort of an attitude of, oh, you know, nobody here likes me because I'm not wealthy like them, you know, and so that certainly didn't help. But I had a car, which I thought having a car, you know, I didn't have a nice car, but I had a car and I thought, oh my God, I'm so disadvantaged having this car. But later on, I realized having a car at all is actually a privileged thing. They would leave anonymous notes on my car, making fun of my car and... Really were mean. Yeah. So it was, de- you know, it definitely added to my feeling of, oh, rich people are mean, rich people are bad. So Jenny, when you went off to Cal, how far did you carry these messages when you were thinking about what to study? Was making money a goal for you or, or was it a goal to not make money, to do mm-hmm. good in the world without making money? Yeah, I think I unconsciously I didn't want to make money. I always thought, you know, oh, I'll work at a nonprofit and I'll make enough to just survive and have security. But I I thought, you know, no one should live on a lot of money and, you know, no one should buy anything that's unnecessary. And so I I always had that goal of kind of being a a nonprofit worker slash public interest lawyer that would, you know, not make a lot of money, but would be the crusader trying to change the world. (laughs) And when when you were studying and especially in law school, were you hanging out with other like-minded students? Yes, I found the students at my law school. So I went to Yale Law School, which was full of High, very wealthy people and, you know, pretty, um, very uh, ambitious people. <laughs> but there were a small group of people who were the radicals that said, you know, we will never go work for a corporate law firm. You don't have to do it. Don't feel like you have to go interview with those corporate law firms. So I didn't. I, they made it so easy. There was a time of year where they would, all these law firms would rent a a big um, room at a hotel across the street from the law firm and interview for summer associates. And I didn't go, I wouldn't go. I said, no, I'm not selling out. I'm not going to be a corporate lawyer. So what, what did you want to (laughs) be? I didn't know exactly what, but I knew I wanted to do, you know, be a lawyer that would fight for social justice in one way or another. So I took a lot of classes about civil rights. And I also was, I spent a lot of time in the clinic within the landlord tenant clinic and other different legal clinics trying to help the low income people who live in New Haven, Connecticut. 
one thing I did realize is I really didn't like litigation. So I needed to find a way to use my legal knowledge to help people without having to litigate. And that's how I found out about this thing called community development, which is basically almost being like a corporate lawyer for a nonprofit that's doing housing development or business assistance, things like that. So that's what I ended up, I was lucky enough to find a job doing that after law school and I did love it. That's great. Jenny, law school and even college can be expensive. (laughs) (laughs) How did you pay for this? Yeah. So my parents did save up a lot of money to pay for a lot for my education. And because education was so important to them. And amazingly enough, my law school did have an incredible loan forgiveness program. So if you went and worked at a job that didn't pay very well, they would actually pay your loans off for you. So after about 10 years, they had paid, the law school paid my loans off. Did you know that going into you? I did. That was one of the reasons I went there because I was like, of course, I'm going to be one of those people that takes advantage of that, you know? (laughs) That's fantastic, actually. Yeah. And when you were doing work in nonprofit and community development, were you feeling like you were successful in fighting injustice? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. You know, once you're in, in an organization, you start to see kind of the the less idealistic parts of doing this kind of work and the compromises that need to be made. And so I, I did love a lot of what I did, but I also felt somewhat resentful about some things. I felt like sometimes the people that did the most work at the organization, like the community organizers that lived in the community and were out on the streets doing amazing things to help people, they weren't paid very well. Mm. Whereas like the high level executives who lived in the fancier parts of town, you know, got really good salaries. And I felt like we were somewhat recreating some of the injustices almost within the organization sometimes. So I got a little disillusioned. And then after a while, I, I did decide to leave because I started to feel like I'm paid so little. And sometimes I feel like I don't get the appreciation that I, I would like to get for doing, you know, I would have stayed there forever at that low salary. (laughs) But when I started to feel a little bit exploited and unappreciated, that's when I really just was like, why am I doing this? (laughs) And tell us what was happening with that chip on, on your shoulder that you had been carrying around since childhood around wealth and your perspectives on unwealthy people. Was that still present? Yes, that definitely still was present. And What ended up finally changing that for me was I did start working in the world of finance. So I partnered with this lawyer who had experience in the world of securities law. We started helping people raise money and I started meeting investors. And actually, we even started raising money ourselves for our own business. And I started meeting investors, who some of whom were quite wealthy, and I realized I really liked them. And I liked, I mean, obviously not all of them, but many of them I really liked because they were wanting to support my clients and my business because they did find themselves with a lot of wealth for whatever reason, but they were wanting to do good with it. So I realized, oh my gosh, you know, the amount of money you have really has nothing to do with 
how good of a person you are. You know, there's great people with lots of money and great people with not so much money. And it's all about, you know, what do you choose to do with what you have? And so that's when I started to get over that negative feeling about people with wealth. And thank God I did because now I do help people raise money. And if I went around saying, I hate wealthy people, (laughs) (laughs) it would be hard to help my clients, you know, get, attract that money. You know, not that all investors are wealthy. We help everyone be able to invest regardless of their level of wealth. But obviously people with wealth are a great ally to have if they want to support highly mission-driven businesses and ventures. Mm -hmm. That's well said. So I'd love to understand, Jenny, raising money is very hard to do. I mean, talk about money conversations and hard money conversations. Why don't you share a little bit about that experience and how had you survived that conversation? How did you learn to develop skills to have the conversations? Oh my gosh. I feel like there's nothing I've ever done. No therapy, no personal growth program that has done more to completely transform who I am as a person than raising money from investors. Because when I first did it, I decided to do it for myself, for my business partner. And I decided let's raise money for our business because we had been helping others do it as part of our our practice. And we said, we could do it too. And so I kind of thought he was older, you know, a white man with a lot of impressive experience. So I thought, oh yeah, you know, he'll go out and talk to the investors and we'll raise the money. But little did I know he actually wasn't super excited about doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So I realized if we're going to raise money, I'm going to have to step up to the plate and do it. And I was terrified. But the way we were raising money, our minimum investment was only $1,000. So you could invest in our business at that time for $1,000. And so I just psyched myself up and I said, okay, you're only asking for $1,000, you know, don't be afraid. So and then I also had, we had had some colleagues, you know, some people we had hired to work for our business that were also just really great and supportive. And they we'd be at a conference and they'd be like, Jenny, that person over there, go ask them right now, go ask them. And so I just forced myself and I was terrified. Just getting the words out of my mouth was so hard, but I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I didn't die. <laughs> so I realized this is okay. I'm going to survive this. And then I, amazingly enough, people would say yes. And then some people even came in for more than $1,000 without me. I would say, well, the minimum is $1,000. And they would say, I'll put in 15 You know, it was one of those things where you just you learn by doing and it's a muscle that you build and you and it just gave me so much more confidence i finally learned it's okay to ask for things and you don't have to feel like you know it's all about you and it you don't have to personalize it it's about making an offer of something that you think is awesome and they can say yes or no and then you move on and and so that just completely transformed my life the more i got comfortable with that and that's really why i do what i do now because i want others to go through that same process you wanted to be terrified 
<laughs> Hopefully they can maybe skip that part, but they often don't. You know, a lot of my clients, as I'm helping them raise money, those first conversations, they are terrified. But they I are. keep telling them, I understand. I went through it too. But just do it and you'll find it gets easier and easier. And, and that does happen. What were you terrified of? Oh, like looking back, I'm like, I don't know what was so scary about it, you know, but there's something about asking for money, especially not so much what I found, you know, I know a lot of people in the nonprofit world and I was in the nonprofit world and I find we often are not super afraid to ask for a donation for a nonprofit because we feel like that's not for me, that's for this good cause. But when you're asking for it for your own business, it feels very personal. You might look at it as a validation of, am I a worthwhile person? If someone says no and I can't raise money for my business, does that say that I'm not a worthwhile person? And so just finally realizing that that is not true. Even if you did ask 100 people and they all said no, that says absolutely nothing about your worth as a person. It just means you didn't find the right people or you need a little help with describing things better. You know, it, it absolutely has nothing to do with your worth as a person. And once I realized that, it just got so much easier. Great message. Don't take it personally. Jenny, tell us, were there any awkward conversations in those early days of learning how to ask for money? I feel like I was very awkward and it was hard for me to get the words out. But what was so cool is I realized no one really cared. In fact, in some ways, I feel like that almost made people more supportive because I wasn't trying to be all slick and perfect. Some people, when they pitch an investment opportunity, they feel like they have to sound like know-it-alls and nothing's ever gone wrong for them and they never get nervous about anything. And I find that if you pitch like that, it actually can be off-putting. Whereas if you're just yourself and you acknowledge like, yeah, of course I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not totally confident. Of course I'm a little nervous right now. And people like that. We're all human when it comes, you know, even investors are human and they like to deal with humans. So you were, you were learning how to ask for money. You were interacting with a lot more people with wealth. How are you internally transforming in this pivot? Because this seems bold. You're working in a nonprofit and you go off to start your own law firm with a partner focusing on an area of law that you didn't have any real experience with. Yeah, I mean, when our our first clients were so mission-driven that they almost were nonprofit-like. It was a pretty smooth transition for me. You know, they, our first big client was a grocery store that was opening up in a low-income neighborhood in Oakland. Their chances of ever making large amounts of money were incredibly low. <laughs> it was a for-profit business, but it was about as close to a nonprofit as you could get. And so advocating on behalf of those types of clients was a great way to transition into the world of for-profits. And today I have clients that are, I still only work with highly mission-driven businesses, but some of them do actually have the potential to be quite successful financially, make big profits, grow big. So, and now I'm really comfortable with that. I, I feel like I've my personal 
comfort level with wealth has gotten much greater. So I want to be wealthy. I want to grow my own wealth. I want my clients to be wealthy because now I feel like people who are trying to do good things in the world, under our current system, someone has to have wealth, right? <laughs> That's just the way our system works. So let's make sure that we get as much of that wealth into the hands of people who are doing good in the world as possible. So I'm quite comfortable now with the idea of building wealth for me and my clients. That's tremendous. So we started this conversation talking about your badge of honor was to getting paid little. And now you're saying, no. No more. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. And you've talked a bit about that transition. Was there a moment that you really had this aha? Was there just something special or was it, did it gradually build? I think it was a lot of personal growth work, joining a lot of coaching programs, reading a lot of books, having a lot of friends that were, you know, thinking about similar things and just learning little by little to not feel unworthy of wealth or feel like if I had wealth that I was greedy or bad. And it, it just took time, you know, it took a lot of time, a lot of conversations, a lot of working on my mindset. And Jenny, who were you talking with in this period of time? What were the conversations like? Because I wanted to grow my business back when I ha had that law firm with that colleague, we really wanted to grow the business. And part of why we raised money to pay for marketing and sales, coaching and support. And so I actually joined a coaching program that was about marketing and sales but then I realized, as I, after I joined it, I realized a lot of what the program was about was coaching around money mindset as well, which I had never heard that concept before that you're really not going to probably be super successful at marketing and sales if you have really negative beliefs around money. I learned from that coach that the more comfort you have with money conversations, with having money, with asking for money the more successful your business is going to be. And you can't really have a scarcity mentality and expect your business to be big and successful at the same time. It's probably just not going to happen <laughs> unless you hire someone else to do maybe do all the sales, which I never felt comfortable with that because I'm the one who's most passionate about my business. I want to be the spokesperson for my business. And if I'm going to be a spokesperson for my business, I have to have comfort with having that business grow, which means money coming in. <laughs> so seems obvious, but, uh, you know, well, that's brilliant. That's a really big transformation based on what you shared with us. It's yeah. Easy to do. And you've worked hard. I realized I had to really change my mindset around money. And this coach was really great at hammering home that people like us who care about making the world a better place should have money because it allows us to do more good. So Jenny, anything that's good, you have to continue working on it. How do you work on this today? Yeah, I do continue to read books on the topic. I have friends. I have two friends that I talk to on a regular basis who we, we talk specifically about money. Also, I did struggle a lot I, with my husband. I married my second husband. Um, he, we got married. It's been about 13 years now. He likes to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's not frugal, you know, and I was raised to be incredibly frugal. And at first it drove me crazy. I was like, why are you spending all this money? We can't afford this. And I finally realized, you know what? Life is short, you know, we deserve to, I mean, he does buy some things that I'm like, really, do we really need that? But, um, <laughs> but I just loosened up quite a bit about, about spending and just learn to relax about it because you know it makes him happy and really at the end of the day is it really that big a deal if he spends some money on things that I don't necessarily think are necessary that was really helpful being with someone who's a lot more comfortable with spending that helped me loosen up quite a bit also that coach that I mentioned before one thing that she advised us to do was to actually give away 10% of our gross every year to causes that we care about. And so I actually did that for quite a while. I don't do it now because I do have a bunch of employees and I just, I honestly don't think I could afford to do it anymore. But at that time I was more of a solopreneur and I could just say, okay, everything that comes in 10% I'm giving away to charity, to causes I care about, to people I care about. And I did that religiously for a few years. And I think that also helped me release my grip and be more comfortable with letting it go, let it flow. You know, I didn't feel like I needed to grasp onto every dime that came my way. <laughs> I love that you and your husband had such different habits and, and mindsets toward money and you found a way to meet him maybe in the middle, maybe even beyond the middle, more toward his side. That can be a really hard thing for couples to overcome. Yeah. That can cause a lot of tension. Are you talking about money a lot? Yeah. And it was tough because I felt really afraid when he would spend money. But over the years, I've learned to trust him around money because he, you know, he's, my first husband was quite irresponsible around money and, and dishonest, actually. Mm. So I was very afraid about that issue and but over the years I've really learned to trust my husband that he you know he isn't irresponsible he he's good with money he just isn't quite as he doesn't feel as much of a need as I do to be frugal <laughs> so Jenny during this time with your current husband when you were making this adjustment were you sharing with him your fears yes absolutely did that help i don't know i think it was a little hard for him to understand because he just, you know, he couldn't relate, you know, he hadn't been raised with that message of fear around never enough, never enough, never enough. So I think he tried to understand and he would say, I'll be better, I'll be better, you know, but I think it, it was a little, it was hard, you know, we would have a lot of fights around it and it was hard for a while. But over the years, I, I, you know, as I've worked on my mindset around money, a lot of that fear has gone away. And so now I'm able to just kind of let go and just know that he's, you know, he's not going to do anything crazy and I can trust him, but I might find some Amazon boxes at my front door every now and then that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Hopefully there's things in there for you. <laughs> Jenny, you mentioned there's these two friends that you speak to on a regular basis, which is a really a, a great model for continuing your, your journey and having many conversations. Please share with us a little bit about how did, how did this even start and, and how does it work today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually met both of these women th with, through that coaching program I was in. 
and we've stayed friends over the years. And interestingly, they both have become really obsessed and interested with money. <laughs> so I've benefited from that, you know, because I, even though I work in the world of finance, when it comes to personal relationship with money, I've always felt kind of like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Even still, I kind of avoid it. I, you know, I have a, someone who manages my money and I never look at the report and I'm just like, whatever, I'm sure, she, I'm sure it's fine, you know. But these two women both love to really, really look at their personal finances and take a lot of classes about creative approaches to investing. And so I really benefited. In fact, one of them now teaches, she coaches women on money money mindset, money consciousness. And so she's learned a lot over the years and I've just kind of gone along with her on the journey. So that's been, I've been lucky that that is, you know, that I'm friends with these women. That's great. And in, in that the conversations you've been having haven't caused you to be more interested in your own personal financial situation. You're still just very comfortable delegating that. Mm, you know, I did one of the one that I, that teaches it now, she actually had a three day retreat. And during that, I went to it. And during that retreat, I did make a commitment to, you know, do a few things to get more conscious. So I decided to make an appointment with my advisor to discuss things, which I hadn't done in a really long time. I actually decided to make a, a weekly money date with my husband based on that retreat. So we just started that where every Sunday we just talk about like, hey, what's going on? You know, how, what do our accounts look like? Is there anything we need to be thinking about? So I have reluctantly tried to get more aware of my personal money situation instead of just putting my head in the sound about it. <laughs> and do you have any insights from these initial steps that, that you'd want to share? It's really good. I, it's so strange. I don't know why it feels so overwhelming to me because I am a finance professional. I mean, in my day job, I that's all I talk about is finance, but there's something about my personal money that I just don't like to think about it or look at it. it and when I think about it, I think, oh, it's so overwhelming. It would take so much time and energy. And then I realize, well, no, not really. I mean, there's little steps I can do that are easy and even fun, you know, the money dates can be fun and I don't have to do it by myself. I think that's another thing. A lot of us, I hate to say women, especially like we, our first instinct is always like, how am I going to do this? You know, it doesn't always occur to us. I can get help realizing I can get help from my dad and my, because my dad does still give me advice. <laughs> I don't always take it, but he thinks a lot about money and investing. So he gives me advice and my husband can chime in and my wealth advisor can chime in and you know I don't I'm not on my own and it doesn't have to be so overwhelming. That's such important messages. I, we found on these conversations that a lot of people do feel they have to know everything and or do everything. And I think this message of first of all weekly money dates, brilliant, almost bite-sized messaging, and that you don't have to do it alone. Pull in partners, mm -hmm. get experts. Make but it fun. Make it fun. Yeah, for sure. Jenny, I'm curious, now that your own relationship with money has shifted, how has that impacted your broader family relationship around money? Because your parents raised you to be frugal and it sounded like the chip on your shoulder in your younger years about wealth was really handed down to you, perhaps from your, your father, especially. 
you've shifted. How are, how's your family reacting to that? Hmm. I don't know. I do feel like my father has changed over the years where he has gotten a bit more relaxed around money. He'll say something to me. Sometimes he'll say, I hope you're maxing out your retirement account, but have ice cream every now and then. (laughs) And I feel like in the past, he would have more focused on the maxing out of the retirement account. But you know, it's like he, he's realizing that life is short. We need to enjoy what we have and not just always be socking it away for a rainy day. So I don't know if that's because of how I've changed, but I feel like he has, has changed somewhat um, over the years and gotten more calm and relaxed about money to some extent. Maybe you were modeling for him. Maybe. I never thought about that. (laughs) They do learn those parents of ours. (laughs) Jenny, how do you define success? For me personally, feeling really fulfilled with the work I'm doing so that I feel like I'm having a positive impact on the people I work with and the world at large and also enjoying myself, which they go together, you know, feeling like I'm having a positive impact is a source of happiness and joy for me. And also feeling like I'm using my particular skills and abilities to do that. You know, I'm not trying to help people in ways that I'm not good at, you know, so I have that joy of feeling like I'm doing something that I'm good at. I can really help people do things that they may not be good at or not have the skills to do. And and it feels really good to add that expertise and work with people towards a positive goal. And I'm curious, Jenny, will you work with any mission-driven business or are you putting a lens on the mission? It's a gut feeling. Like I don't have any uh, written down description of what is a mission-driven business. But when I talk to an entrepreneur who I can tell they're really, really passionate about making the world a better place. And that absolutely doesn't mean that they don't want to make great money. (laughs) Those things can go hand in hand. But when I get that sense from an entrepreneur that in some way, whatever it is, and there's so many different ways, you know, whatever it is about their business that they sense that if this business is successful, it's going to really make the world better in some way. I get super excited by that. When I talk to someone who's solely focused on, oh yeah, this is going to be huge and we're going to make a ton of money, that does not excite me at all. I have no interest in working on that kind of a project. So the world needs to get better. (laughs) I feel strongly about that. Yeah, especially, you know, things are pretty bad right now in a lot of ways, unfortunately, but... I do. I see. I have so much hope, though, because I do get to meet these amazing entrepreneurs. And there's just so many of them of all ages in all states of, you know, I only work in the U.S. pretty much, but in every state, in every at every stage, at every age, at every race, gender, you know, everything. There's people wanting to make the world a better place. Well, that's phenomenal. You have achieved success when I when I listen to you, you are creating positive impact and you're enjoying yourself. Is there anything you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I would love to see a bigger shift in finance. And if I can be, I know I am playing a role in shifting the world of finance with what I do. And if I could play a bigger role in growing the movement to make finance more accessible, friendly, just, sustainable, good for the world, you know, I would just be thrilled to be able to 
say I did that, you know, I was part of that movement and I made a big difference in that movement. And I am right now growing a community. I, ha- I have one community of investors that I started a couple years ago, and now I'm growing a community of entrepreneurs to, you know, to kind of spread that, those ideas of what's possible and how finance can be a force for good. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that? Over the years of doing this work, I've developed a lot of ideas and practices for practical ways that money can move where the investors and the recipients of the investment benefit, but other stakeholders benefit as well, like the workers, the community, the environment. And there's many ways that that can happen. And unfortunately, most people don't know much about that. (laughs) And there's very limited knowledge about how finance can work and how money can flow. And I, my belief is that if more people knew about how money can flow in a way that's creating positive impact on everyone involved, more people would move their money into those kinds of investments. Or if they were a business owner, they would raise money from investors using those kinds of tools and models. So I just, my big mission right now is to just try to spread the word about what's possible. Um, and I and so I started this group called Capital on Your Own Terms Community for Entrepreneurs. And then I have another group called Angels of Main Street, which is my uh, investors mm-hmm. group. And the goal of both of those is to bring people into a community where we learn together and we share, uh, me and my colleagues share our knowledge and support people in their process. And and it's not just about learning like, oh, what which securities law rule are you going to use to raise money or are you going to do equity or debt? I mean, that's part of it, but it's also what are your mindset issues that might be getting in your way and how can we help you with those? (laughs) Because I do believe that that is often what will stop people from using money in a way that is more healthy and productive, but also maybe outside the box and requires a little more um, bravery. (laughs) Fascinating work and bravo to you for doing it. So Jenny, as you look over the last 15 years that you've been doing this work, what are you most proud of? I had that client, one of my very first clients, which was a grocery store in a low-income neighborhood, which hadn't even done anything yet to even find a location. All It was really just an idea. We want to put a grocery store in this low-income neighborhood in Oakland because it's a food desert and people aren't eating healthily and they're having to travel for miles to get decent food and we want to create good jobs. And that was all it really was, was just this idea. And we helped them raise about $1.7 million from equity investors. Um, They have, I think they have, gosh, maybe like 300 investors. And then that leveraged more money. And then eventually they were actually able to open. It took a really long time, but they are now open. And so that's just one of many examples of businesses that in in a mainstream finance conversation, you would say, oh no, they could never raise money from investors. Are you kidding me? And they did. They raised like a significant amount, you know, and they made it happen and their investors love them and they're very patient because guess what? None of us have got, I'm one of the investors and none of us have gotten our first check yet. (laughs) And that was a really long time ago, but that's okay. We love them. We want them to be successful. We know that we have to be patient. 
and that's okay. And so, you know, when I see someone like that, a business like that being able to raise money, I just believe anything is possible. And I, I, you know, I've seen all different kinds of businesses raise money and I don't want to give the impression that all my clients are like, if you invest in them, don't ever expect to get paid (laughs) because that's not true either. I mean, I have some clients that are already paying their investors and they're doing really well, but you know, people invest for many different reasons beyond just making a good financial return. And I think seeing a business like that be successful with raising money just made me realize, well, gosh, then almost any business could raise money because most businesses businesses are farther along than that and have a better chance of probably paying more quickly. (laughs) That's a great example. Thank you for sharing it. Mm -hmm. Jenny, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? One thing I would say is to really try to dig deep and figure out what are your beliefs about money and about wealthy people and figure out if you do feel some of that anger and resentment. I mean, it's very common, especially these days where we have these people, the concentration of wealth is so extreme among the highly wealthy people in our country. And they often do things that make it, it's very maddening to see people buying these huge yachts when they could be feeding people. <laughs> so you, it's very easy to get angry at wealthy people. And, and especially if you were raised with that resentment and that negative feeling. But if you can kind of overcome that, it, I think it can be really healthy because it can o- allow you to start having wealth yourself. If you feel negatively about wealthy people, it's going to be hard for you to grow wealth because you will have this unconscious belief that if I grow wealth, I'm a bad person. And so that's getting in your way of having wealth. And you should have wealth if you are, everyone should have wealth just because some people have wealth and are using it for things that aren't, we don't love <laughs> doesn't mean that we shouldn't all have wealth. Mm, even more reason to have yeah. wealth spread out. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. That's great. What is your next money conversation going to be, Jenny? And who's it going to be with? On Sunday night, my money date with my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have an agenda in mind? We'll probably just do a check-in. And we did just plan a vacation for this September. So we'll probably talk about that. It'll be, of course, our first vacation in a while. Thanks to what's been happening in the world. But um, so yeah, we'll talk about that. And how, uh, how expensive we want the hotel to be. <laughs> we wish you a lot of success with that conversation. And we thank you, Jenny Casson, for this amazing Money Tales conversation. I love how the desire to do good in the world and to close the gap on injustice has been a thread that you continue to sow throughout your journey. And we loved hearing about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jenny. Sandy, what's a takeaway from Jenny's money tales that you'd like to share with our listeners? Kimmy, I think it's interesting that Jenny developed that chip on her shoulder about wealth early on in her life. She was growing up in a family who valued education and sort of shunned money. And those two perhaps opposing forces came together for her when she was sent to private school and spent a lot of time with some really wealthy kids. 
And I thought it was interesting that Jenny formed her own identity, realizing that she was in a different financial situation than her peers, but she kind of took it really far and assumed that she was poor compared to these really, really wealthy kids. And that formed this chip on her shoulder that she shared with us. And she carried that chip with her for so long. And then as an adult, really began to chip away at it and uh, eventually remove that chip from her shoulder. It's interesting to think something like that so, is so deep-seated and, and it's, it's really powerful and it made her who she is, but also, as you said, needing to chip away at this chip and with time, realizing she unconsciously didn't want to make money, but that really wasn't the answer. It was, it was really stemming back from this youth of thinking making money was a bad thing. And I liked how she evolved and found that that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's more how you value money and how you use it. That's really where the judgment might, might come in and be more apt. Yes. And, and she realized that it wasn't about winners and losers. Everybody could be winners when it comes to wealth. And I thought that was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about you, Cami? What's a big takeaway yeah, so it really, one thing she talked about really resonated with me personally, that she's a finance professional, but in her personal life is an anti-finance person. In her personal life, she doesn't want to talk about finances or think about them. And as a matter of fact, she finds them overwhelming. And that really resonated with me because I would say I have similar feelings. I work in financial services, as you know, with you. We talk about wealth and wealth management day in and day out. But when it comes to my personal life, it's just one more thing to do. And it feels at times overwhelming. So as a result, I don't tackle the financial decisions and work that needs to be done. I push it off. And as a result, then it becomes a bigger and bigger burden. And I'd love to know from you, Sandy, how can you help the Jennies and the Cammies of the world who just find it overwhelming? I think both of you have already taken the first step, which is awareness. And Jenny's done some things about it, which I think are great, including breaking all the overwhelming big projects down into small pieces. I like the idea of chunking the list out into what needs to be done right away what can be pushed off a while, and what can be pushed off for months. And then prioritizing which of the actions are going to have the highest impact within each of those three columns on the list. That, I think, even just putting those ideas down on paper and getting them out of your head should allow some breathing room and should take some of the overwhelm away. Also, Cami, continuing to talk about money like we do on Money Tales every week, and that I know each of us are doing even more and more in our personal lives helps as well because it gives you some perspective. Sandy, that's so true. As a result of these conversations, there have been such neat pieces of wisdom that is inspiring me to take those small steps that then 
reduces the burdensome feeling that managing your finances can feel at times. Because it's not just you, it's your family. It's in some cases, and for me personally, it's my my parents. And it's a lot. But if you break it down and prioritize, it's not as overwhelming. And Cammie, I know you know this, but another way to, to help manage the overwhelm is to delegate some of these responsibilities to someone else. And it does take it does take a little bit of work to get that relationship in place, but it can make a really big difference. I agree. I agree. Thank you, Sandy. What else, Sandy? I want to go back to something I briefly mentioned and explored a little bit more, which is Jenny talking about the fact that having money doesn't really dictate who you are and whether you're a good person or a bad person. The emphasis should really be on what are you doing with the money? And I love that Jenny shared that everyone should have wealth. It shouldn't be in the hands of just certain people. And I appreciate that Jenny's working really hard to add more justice to our financial system by creating investment opportunities and structuring deals in a way where all stakeholders walk away with a profit and are enriched by the experience, not only in terms of money, but in terms of their satisfaction and in terms of the satisfaction of the impact that their actions have had on making the world a better place for all of us. So I thought that was super cool. I love that Jenny is walking her talk and I applaud her and know that she'll keep doing this and it, it is making a difference to our world. Very positive one. What's great is that we are now given the opportunity to be more impactful with our wealth. And you know, it's neat to see these different investment vehicles and investment styles that you can align your values with how you're managing your money. And I just, I know we've really probably just cracked the surface of, of a, a big opportunity. And I think it's really important. Society seems to be aligned with wanting to have more and more opportunities to be proactive about things that they're really passionate about. And you can, you don't, you can do it with sweat equity, but you can also do it with your money and you can do it with both. And I think that's great. It's a a very exciting time in history. I think in another 20 or 30 years, we're going to look back and realize all of the revolutionary changes and shifts that are happening in the global economy because people are becoming more intentional about what we're doing with our money. Sandy, thanks again for another conversation. Thank you, Jenny Casson. You enlightened us. You opened my mind to a lot of things. I learned from you as a result, and we really appreciate you joining us on Money Tales. Yes. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you to our listeners. And we wish you luck with all the many tales that you're generating in your lives. Don't forget, you can reach us at podcasts at And we look forward to hearing from you and join us each week. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.